Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Well, good morning and welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and we are so glad that you are with us this morning. If you are joining us for the first time today, or maybe the first time in a little bit or a while, we are in week three of a sermon series called You in Five Years. And the whole point of this series is, is really simple. If, if we're alive in five years, there will be a you in five years. And so the question is, what kind of you are you going to be in five years? How are we going to think about How could we be more intentional, more strategic about planning the you that will be? Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this idea and kind of the point of this series is, if you remember one thing at all, it's this. It's we all end up somewhere. Few of us end up somewhere on purpose. So as a group, how do we talk about, how do we figure out, how do we use scripture to inform where we'll end up, and how that could be purposeful. Because ultimately, I do believe that God has a purpose for our lives. God has a hope that we all find a meaningful, purposeful life. But sometimes the way we go about achieving that doesn't lead us where we hope it'll go. Now, what's been fun for me is over the last couple of weeks, I have been reading a new book um, written by Bob Iger that kind of chronicles his history as the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And it's been really interesting to read the memoir of someone who's looking back on their life and career while we're in the middle of a sermon series that talks about thinking forward and planning ahead where you hope your life and trajectory of your life goes. And so it's been interesting kind of to juxtapose those two ideas. But what's happened for me is as I listened to the life and the memoir of Bob Iger, who for 14 years led the Walt Disney Company, I start to get discouraged about my own life and trajectory. And it's not that I have aspirations to lead the Walt Disney Company. This would be a really poor start if that's what I hoped would ultimately happen with my life. But as I think about his life and as I think about the stories and the lessons and the experiences that he had, you come away with the sense that like, he's just better than me. You know, he's smarter, he's more talented, he's more educated, he's more thoughtful. And, you know, of course, if I wrote a memoir, I would have a highly curated version of my life too. And so I recognize that I'm just touching on some of the high points of his life. And he probably got mad at people and probably had arguments with his fellow employees and so forth. But if you're like me, when you start to look at the success of other people, it's easy to become discouraged and think that I don't have what they have. And so I can't get to where they've gotten. There's just some fundamental lack of ability, talent, you know, intelligence, some missing parts of my character that I'm just never going to have. And so maybe I could try to outwork people, but I just, there's a, there's a ceiling on where I can go based on a lot of my biological factors. That's kind of the takeaway that I get after reading and listening to Bob's book. But the good news for us today and what we're going to be talking about this morning is that that's actually not totally true. We ultimately end up placing far more importance than we should on these biological factors. What school you went to, where you grew up, what job you were with, or all of these different things. The amount of, you know, what your IQ score is, or your emotional intelligence, and all these things. We place far more importance on 
efforts, energies, character, habits than we should because that's actually not the primary indicator or the primary mover of where we end up in life. It's actually something far more subtle that we often overlook. And we're gonna do so by looking at the life of a man named Solomon. Now maybe you've heard of Solomon, but Solomon was a king, he was David's son, and he is often described as the wisest and maybe richest man who ever lived. This is how scripture talks about King Solomon. It says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all of the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. So, to help us understand that it's not about natural ability, talent, effort, we're going to look at the smartest and wisest man who ever lived. That makes sense, right? Well, the reason we're looking at maybe the perfect leader who ever existed outside of Jesus is because ultimately Solomon's career doesn't end up where we think Solomon's career ends up. Solomon doesn't find all of the success and experience all of the success that you would expect the wisest and richest person who's ever lived to have. And the reason, as we'll uncover, is something that dominates, guides, and forms our life and our trajectory as well. Now, in another book I read by Jared Diamond called Guns, Germs, and Steel, he points out this subtle fact about the geography of the planet. And what he points out is that all of the continents have a very particular shape. Now, if any of you remember geography, you're like, yeah, no kidding, I get it. But what he points out is that the geography of the continents actually played a really important role in how civilizations were shaped over the course of thousands of years. Now, here's what he said. He said, when you look at the geography of the Americas, they're, they run on a vertical axis. They run north-south. They're, they're skinny but long. But when you look at some place like Europe or the Middle East or Asia, they're actually running across a horizontal axis, and they run east and west, and they're wide but not very tall. And again, similar if you look at Africa, for the most part, it follows a vertical trajectory or axis similar to the Americas. Now, most of us look at this and go, yeah, okay, so what? Now here's what the author points out. He said the reason that we see throughout civilization and throughout history is that the civilizations from Europe, the Middle East, and Asia were the ones who grew fastest, built the greatest armies, and conquered most of the world is based on this geography. It's based on these conditions that they find themselves in. It's not based on biological factors as often assumed. It's not because people from Europe are smarter than anywhere else in the world or the people from the Middle East are the best warriors. It's none of those factors. It's actually from something that's not totally in their control. It's based on the geography or the environment that they find themselves in. Now, here's why. When you were building crop, developing crop, trading crop, as you were working in agriculture, what you find is that all of the crop in the same climate region can be transported across different places in the globe. So, for example, if you have a banana, like I do this morning. <laughs> Coincidentally, just in case I get hungry up here. If you have a banana, you can go anywhere horizontally, kind of in that tropic climate zone, and bananas will grow. If you try to go vertically, 
across different climate zones, bananas start to find themselves in environments where they cannot grow. It doesn't matter how good of a farmer you are, what kind of green thumb you have. If you take this banana to the Arctic or the Antarctic, you cannot grow more bananas. It doesn't matter how much you want to. And the reason is really simple. The environment that the banana is now in is not conducive to the banana growing. So what does this mean for agriculture? It means that if you were someone who lived in Europe, the Middle East, or Asia, as agriculture spread, you could rapidly trade across people who lived in your continent. And so it was easy for agriculture to grow, for civilizations to grow around it, for armies to build up, and then for those armies to be able and capable of conquering other civilizations and societies around the world. But the opposite was not true if you found yourself living in the Americas or living in Africa. It was difficult to spread agriculture because you had to come up with new crops for new climate zones. And so your civilizations couldn't grow as far, they couldn't be as developed, you didn't have as large populations, and thus your armies were smaller, and you couldn't do what those people who found themselves in Europe, Middle East, and Asia could do. So if you had a goal to read a lot of books this year, you're already two down, because I've just kind of given you the synopsis of two books. So you have a head start, you're welcome for that. Now, what does this mean for us? It's really simple. What most of us try to do is we try to grow bananas in Antarctica. We find ourselves in environments that aren't conducive to the visions and the goals that we want for our lives. We say, listen, I want to lose weight. And then we find ourselves going through the drive-thru at that fast food restaurant again and again and again. Or I want to learn a language, but then we don't place ourselves in a different environment to learn that language. The secret to human behavior, the invisible hand that guides the way that we change and move and grow in our life, is to pay attention to our environments. So we're going to go through the story of Solomon and talk about how the person with the greatest biological advantage, the wisest, richest man who ever lived, the person who had the greatest head start on where he should end up, ultimately found himself in a place of failure because of this fundamental law and this fundamental truth. He did not pay attention to his environment. Let me put this banana down, and then we'll get going. Okay, now what we need to know about King Solomon is that King Solomon was the son of King David, and King David was the successor to King Saul. So that means Solomon was the third king over all of Israel. Now, when God was helping Israel become its own nation and its own state, God gave a set of instructions to guide the people. And one particular clause of those instructions were specific to the kings. These were the rules that the kings had to follow. And so this would have been something that all of the people knew, all of the previous kings knew, and this would have been something that Solomon, as wise and intelligent as he was, he would have been aware of as well. And this is what it says. This comes out of Deuteronomy. And this is where a lot of the law, the rules, the instructions for Israel are found. And this is what it says. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, God anticipates what's going to be happening. When you finally move to your own house and you're in charge of your own family, here are the rules that you need to run your family by. Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. And if you do that, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. 
The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make his people return to Egypt to get more horses. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now, if you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, they were once slaves in Egypt. So it makes sense. Listen, don't get too many horses. And if you're going to get horses, don't get them from Egypt because that's where you used to be slaves. Got it. Makes sense. Additionally, if you're a king, you must not take many wives or your heart will be led astray. And you must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay. Now to synthesize all of this for us so that we can digest it, here are the four rules. Don't have too many horses. Don't have horses from Egypt. Don't have too many wives. And don't have too much silver and gold. Now, these rules feel a little arbitrary. They feel a little random. And maybe if you're here today, you're asking yourself, well, I wonder why those are the particular rules. It would not be all that dissimilar than as a parent, you having rules for what you want your kids to do and not to do, but them not quite being able to grasp the rules. Well, why can't I stay out past such and such time? Well, there's a reason, and it's largely because you care enough about your children that you want to keep them in environments that are most conducive for their happiness, their success, and to keep them out of trouble. That's just one example. Well, this is the reason behind the rules that God gives the kings. These rules exist for a reason. They're to help you manage the environment that you find yourself in. But King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, fails to recognize the power of this truth in his own life. So we're going to look at what happens next with Solomon. So we've already seen this. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Now, this comes out of the 10th chapter of 1 Kings. The previous nine chapters are all about all of the amazing things that Solomon did. All of the accomplishments, all of the buildings, all of the success, all of the peace that Israel found themselves in. This was the golden era of this nation, as Solomon is their leader. So this wasn't somebody who just had a default, you know, a bad character flaw. This wasn't somebody who constantly mismanaged money or constantly abused his staff. Solomon was a great leader. He was such a great leader that Israel was like the prominent nation among all of the geographical players. And so people from all around the world would come to meet Solomon, to listen to Solomon, to learn from Solomon. If Solomon had a memoir like Bob Iger, everybody would be reading it, trying to figure out how they do what Solomon did. And so this is what happened. Year after year, everyone who came, they brought a gift. We want to come meet Solomon. We want to come learn. Maybe we can become like Solomon. Maybe there's this process of osmosis that if we can just get in the same room with the guy that maybe we'll kind of adopt some of the biological traits that he has and we can be as successful, have what we want in our lives just like he has. Because again, we always overestimate the importance of ability, talent, effort, and action. And we underestimate the importance of our environment. So people who came, they brought a gift, as you would do if you showed up to a foreign dignitary's office. They brought articles of silver and gold. They brought robes, weapons and spices, and horses 
and mules. Year after year, this happened because people wanted to come see the wisest, smartest, most successful, richest man who lived. And this is what happened. Solomon acquired more and more chariots and horses until he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses that he kept in chariot cities and with the kings in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, there were four rules that the king should not break. One of them was don't have too many horses. That was the first rule. I don't know how, too many, how many too many horses are. My guess would be that somewhere around 12,000, you're starting to kind of come over the limit of how many horses that you should have. Doesn't tell us, just don't have too many horses. Solomon ends up with 12,000 horses. But that's not where Solomon stops. He keeps going. In Jerusalem, the king, Solomon, he made silver as common as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees that grow in the foothills. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, what you know is that the entire city is built out of stone. And so if Solomon made silver as plentiful and as common as stones, that's a metaphor for there were a lot of silver going on. Well, what was the fourth rule? Don't have too much silver and gold. Okay, well, he fails that rule too. Keeps going. Also, you should note, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. Don't have too many horses. Don't get your horses from Egypt. Don't have too much silver and gold. He's, he's three or four right now. And then in the next verse. In addition to Pharaoh's daughter, King Solomon loved many foreign women, including Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. He loved many foreign women. And these came from the nations that the Lord had commanded the Israelites about. Now, this commandment was a warning. Do not intermarry with these people. Now, this is often a passage that gets misappropriated um, to condemn things throughout history. One of the things that it used to be misappropriated to condemn was interracial marriage. That is not what this is talking about. This was about trying to preserve a culture. This was about trying to preserve a religion. And so thousands of years ago, this was the rule. Don't marry these other foreigners. This would be like today if you went to, let's say, I don't know, the University of Texas, and you married somebody who graduated from LSU. Well, inevitably, over the course of your marriage, particularly in the past week, you would probably find yourself unintentionally rooting for and cheering for LSU. You don't mean to. Your real allegiance is to the University of Texas, but inevitably what happens is when you have people in your life who are from other places you, and they care about things different than you, you begin to adopt and care for the things that they care about. So my guess is if you find yourself in one of those mixed marriages where you and your spouse do not go to the same university and one of your universities is doing well in sports or some other competition, you probably find yourself cheering for your spouse's university unless they're competing against your university. Well, this is part of the warning and the danger that God was anticipating for Solomon. And so this is exactly what happened. As Solomon grew old, his heart turned toward the gods of his wives. He wasn't committed to the Lord, his God with all his heart, as was his father, David. It wasn't intentional. It was slow, unassuming, it was gradual. You can imagine Solomon 
as king, trying to be devoted to his God, but his wife's like, hey, honey, you know, my God that I have, I don't really have a place to worship this God, and you've got a really big place, a really nice palace and temple to worship your God. What if you just built a little one for me over here? Well, that would be fine, except for Solomon had a lot, a lot of wives, hundreds of wives. Ultimately, he had 700 primary wives and 300 secondary wives. Now, I don't know what you have to do to become primary or secondary wives, and I don't think it's something that we should try to figure out this morning, but with all of those wives, you can imagine how you'd have a whole lot of requests for attention, for appropriation of funds to build shrines, temples, places of worship for all of these different gods. This is, this is the very thing that God knew would happen. This is why this rule existed. Because God knew, listen, if you have a whole bunch of wives, and your wives are from other places, you're going to want to be attentive to and sensitive to their religious needs. But inevitably, what will happen is as you spend time devoted towards their gods, you will lose focus on your God. So don't marry a whole bunch of wives. Particularly, don't marry, marry foreign wives. But Solomon missed this. And so, the greatest man who ever lived, the wisest man, the one who people came from all around the world to come and visit and see and learn from, this is where his life ends up. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. The Lord commanded Solomon about the very thing. The Lord knew the temptation for Solomon's environment to change the orientation of Solomon's heart. God knew that if Solomon found himself in an environment that did not foster and facilitate the worship of God, the orientation of Solomon's heart towards God, the environment would ultimately win out. Because God recognizes the importance of the environment and its impact on our behavior. And as our heart goes, so our life goes. And this was the very thing that these rules existed to prevent. But Solomon didn't pay attention. Solomon didn't see them for what they were. And so you begin to recognize that if the same thing can happen to Solomon, the same thing can happen to us. If we're not careful and we're not intentional about the environment that we place ourselves in, our heart can easily be turned. It can easily get distracted. Our focus and our intention can shift to other things. And if you were with us last week, we talked about how important it is that first and foremost, before we set any vision for our life, we have to pay attention to our heart. We have to pay attention to our inner life and to our inner orientation. Because without that, all of this other stuff doesn't matter and inevitably doesn't achieve what we hope it achieves. We miss out, we lose out on the very thing that we're hoping for, this purposefulness that God has in store for us but it's not because we lack the ability or the intelligence or the character or we have the wrong habits. It's because we don't pay attention to the incredibly powerful pull that our environment has over our lives. This is exactly what happens to Solomon. Through all of his horses and all of his horses from Egypt and all of his foreign wives and all of his money, inevitably, Solomon created an environment that pulls his heart and turns his heart away from God. 
Now, we look at this list of rules, and they kind of seem arbitrary. But when we begin to see them in the light of Solomon's story, in the light of Solomon's life, we recognize that they were very intentional in trying to make sure that Solomon was oriented towards God in his life. Don't have too many horses. Why? Because that's a limitation on power. If you become too powerful, if you become the most powerful man in the world, guess who you begin to prioritize? Guess where your orientation begins to turn in your own life. It's away from God, towards yourself. How do I stay in power? How do I get more power? How do I make sure that everybody else knows that I'm in power? It begins to pull and turn our heart away. Don't have horses from Egypt. Why? Because Egypt was the place that you escaped from. Egypt is moving backwards in the trajectory of your life. For many of us, this would be similar to if you're trying to stay sober, don't put yourself in environments where you're likely to drink. We know this. Come on, this is simple, but we forget how powerful it is for our lives. Don't have horses from Egypt. Don't go backwards. Don't have too many wives. Why? We already talked about this one. The reason is simple. Too many wives distracts you. The people around you influence you and orient you towards the things that they care most about. This is why we spend so much time here at the church talking about the importance of groups, because we recognize how powerful the impact of changing your circle around you is. It helps you. It insulates you. It reorients you towards God. Why? Because when you're surrounding yourself by people who share your same values, who share your same vision for your life, who share the same desires to wanna to grow closer to God and grow in your relationship with each other, it makes it easier. You're influenced by the people around you, just like Solomon was influenced by his wives. Some of us, maybe this is the most important thing that you can do to change and impact your environment. You gotta swap out some friends or find some new ones. Maybe that old group that you've been running around with isn't the group that you should be running around with anymore. Maybe you need to say goodbye or push pause on some relationships. Maybe you need to find some new relationships so that you can help craft and architect a more suitable environment so that your heart isn't turned away from God. And then the last one is don't have too much silver and gold. This is similar to the limitations on power. This is the limitation on wealth. There's something that happens in the human heart when we're constantly trying to acquire more and more and more and more. This is why generosity is so important in our lives. As we let go of, as we release, as we give away, it changes the orientation of our heart. Instead of trying to constantly acquire more and weighted down by the mass of all that we have and the need for constantly having more, as we let go, as we give away, our heart relaxes. We feel less needy and less greedy to gain and gain and gain. Now, when you break it down, it makes a lot of sense why these would be the rules for kings. But this wasn't the only rules that God gave the kings. There was one last one. And this is one that we don't know if Solomon followed, but based on how these others went, my guess is it didn't go very well. This is where Deuteronomy picks up after the four rules that we're looking at. It says this, when he, when the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life. When you become king, you need to write these four rules down, and you need to read it, 
and reread it every day of your life. Why? Because it is so easy to forget the impact that our environments have on our life. And scripture tells us, this is why. So that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. That's a different way of saying his heart is oriented towards God. God is the primary in his life. The reason that he needs to copy down these rules and read them and reread them every single day is so that his heart stays oriented towards God. And so that he can follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. And so that he won't turn to the right or to the left. If you remember what we talked about last week, we talked about how Jesus commands us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, and then love our neighbor as ourself. This is the same command. Solomon's supposed to follow these rules. Why? So his heart stays oriented towards God, which results in the outward manifestation of not considering himself better than anybody else. It always starts with the heart. Where your heart goes, your life follows. And so before we jump into the habits that we need to employ in our lives, before we jump into all of the work and all of the efforts and all of the disciplines that are good and right, we have to pay attention to our environment. We have to begin to think through what are the rules? What are the guiding principles? What are the factors to consider so that I stay in an environment that's most conducive to where I wanna be five years from now? If you wanna learn Spanish, Maybe that's where you want to be from years from now. Or a different language. There's no more conducive of an environment than an immersion course. To move somewhere where they only speak Spanish. Why is that the most effective way? Because you don't have a choice. In order to survive, you have to learn. You're in an environment that's highly conducive to gaining that skill set. To being able to speak fluently that language. The same is true with all the other things. If part of your vision for your life, which I hope it is, is for you to grow in your relationship with God, then maybe you need to join a group. Maybe you need to immerse yourself in a new language, gain a fluency and an ability to prioritize your relationship with God, to begin to architect your environment so that you and your heart stay oriented in the right direction. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we would begin to become more intentional to our environments, that we would not make the mistake of Solomon, that thinking just wisdom and ability and character and talent were enough, but to recognize the invisible hand of the environment that works in our own lives, to curate it, to craft it, to architect it, so that our lives can stay focused on God. Let me pray for us this morning. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for today and this opportunity to be reminded of this truth. God, it is easy to look inward, to focus on all of our abilities, to use those as the determination of whether or not we can achieve our vision. But God, it is so often our environment that guides us most. So God, help us to be intentional, thoughtful, purposeful in the way that we orchestrate and architect our lives so that our environment leads us closer to you. God, we love you and we're grateful for this truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.